Today we have uh, a special guest. His name is Frederick Logoval. He is a professor from uh, Harvard University. He's the Lawrence Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. He won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for History for his book, Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire and the Making of America's Vietnam, which is uh, really uh, one of the must-reads on that subject. And He's now written a book on one of our most iconic uh, presidents and important presidents. Uh, The book is called JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century, 1917 to 1956. And uh, that book uh, covers basically much of his life up until about four years before he ran for president. Uh, Professor Logoval, we're very pleased to have you. We thank you for your time and being able to share your insights with us. Oh, I'm so pleased to be with you. Thank you for having me. One of the most interesting things about your book is that you use President Kennedy's life and his lifespan as basically a a lens, kind of like a window into what was happening with America and Americans' foreign policy, uh, especially with respect to its, its rise to geopolitical dominance. And you point out that he was born in 1917, the year of U.S. entry into World War I and the Soviet coup. Uh, so did President Kennedy ever notice that? Did he ever talk about kind of the significance of his birth? And what led you to use this approach? Well, I don't know that he ever spoke, uh, at least to my knowledge, specifically to the fact that he was born just a few weeks after World War I started for the United States. The U.S. entry was just a few weeks before. I'm guessing that he did. Uh, he was, a, he was a, a student of history. It's one of the themes in my book that he had a kind of historical sensibility. And I think in the second volume, which is yet to be written, but which will cover his presidency, I think we'll see um, evidence of the fact that he had this historical sense and that it mattered. I think what what mattered to me or what I thought that I wanted to do and have tried to do is to tell his story, his remarkable life story, but also, as you say, uh, map onto it the story then of America's rise to um, really great power status and then superpower status. Because in this respect, his half century of life, a little bit less than half a century, is pretty stunning when you think about it. Because again, it's 1917. The United States is kind of a member of the Great Power Club, but a sort of junior member of that club, if I can put it that way. And by the time he dies, this is the greatest military and economic power that the world has ever seen. How did that happen? I think we can better understand that story through Kennedy's story. And it's fascinating because uh, essentially when you make that connection, you show how the seeds are planted for what he'll be dealing with as president in the actual year he's born. And I thought that that was a very insightful kind of uh, something that you pointed out. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I do think, uh, as I was drafting the chapters, or maybe as I was kind of laying out chapters, it did occur to me one day. Yeah, one can do this. One can, one can um, date quite a, independent of this project. I think I would date the beginning of the so-called American century, really from 1917. Um, we also have the Bolshevik Revolution, as you pointed out earlier. I mean, remarkable events that occur just at the time he's born. And I could describe that to the reader as we then go, as we then begin marching through his life. 
Right. And one thing I thought was very interesting, they're often, um, when people look at his father and they talk about, there have been books written about his father and some of them are called the sins of the father and it, it the ideas <laughs> that yeah. he kind of made his kids in his image. But one thing that you pointed out that I think a lot of people haven't thought about was that he, while his father was such a big, you know, important person in his life, uh, he was his own man. And I thought that was very interesting. Now, what was, what kind of father was he? And did he kind of facilitate that in, in President Kennedy? Or did he, uh, you know, was that just intrinsic to Kennedy himself? Um, No, I do think his father helped to cultivate that that sense of independence, ironically enough, because he was a very powerful figure. His, Joe Sr. is how we often refer to him, Joseph Kennedy Sr., because there was a Joe Jr., the oldest child, mm-hmm. the supposed golden child, and we can talk about him. But I think that the father, um, one of his great traits, and he was a complicated figure, problematic figure, um, but if we're going to focus on his positive attributes, one of them, it seems to me, is that he never insisted that his kids, his sons or his daughters, follow in his um, in his footsteps in the sense of a, a career view, uh, career path, a worldview, uh, a view of politics. Uh, he really did insist that they could take their own path. It's nevertheless interesting. It's one of the themes in this first volume that JFK, the second son, proves so so much more willing and able to take uh, his own path, to be his own master, than was <coughs> excuse me than was his older brother Joe Jr. Really interesting difference between the two brothers in this regard, because Joe Jr. never willing to separate himself his father parrots his father's views really till the end till he's killed in world war ii Hmm. and you talk about how president kennedy was much more introspective than his father it was just kind of a that that was a trait that he had Mm -hmm. yeah i think so i think i think in this respect he was a bit more like his mother i mean he is like i guess all of us are to some extent we're you know we're we're both our mother and our father and i think in this respect um uh, Jack was a bit more like his mother. He was more of a reader than his father was. He had um, a greater sense of history, as I suggested before, a kind of interest in the world that I think came mostly from his mother. And I think also this more introspective side, this more reserved side that he had. Uh, I think his father was more ebullient. Uh, his older brother was also a bit more like his father in that regard. Um, Jack somewhat more shy, um, somewhat more reserved, as you were saying. Um, and that's more uh, of the mother's side, I think, coming out. Right. Now, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting, so people have talked about how President Kennedy was was not uh, a very serious student in college. Uh, and yet he really, when in your research, it shows that he really became his own person intellectually and that he was a, a serious student of world affairs. He was very intellectually curious. Was there any turning point? What kind of led him from being to kind of coming into his own intellectually? It's a really good question. You know, I think that there is a certain turning point, but it's all, and I'll come to that in a second, but it's also the case that we do see 
evidence of this from an early point because he's sick a lot as a child and is often in bed, misses a lot of school. Um, he becomes a, 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 a ferocious reader, shows an interest in serious political questions because he's drawn to history books, books on democracy and statecraft, especially European, um, and becomes fascinated by these important questions concerning war and peace. Why do wars begin? How do we end them? I think that's there from an early point. Nevertheless, he's not a very serious student. Um, you see flashes of his potential, but he's not particularly serious. And I think the turning point comes uh, probably in his junior year at Harvard. Maybe even turning point is too strong because what we see in his junior year is that he begins to apply himself. He's done, done some traveling. Uh, he performs better in, in his classes. Uh, and then it's really as a senior at Harvard, when he has to write his senior thesis, which becomes his first book, that's that's when the turning point has been completed, if I can put it that way. Maybe it's a kind of long turning point that takes, you know, takes sure. about a year. They can never take that long. Right, right. I thought it was fascinating learning about his trips to Europe. And you talk about his trips in 1937, 1939. I mean, th these years, it, it's fascinating yeah. because these years are so studied and yet to imagine a young 20 something John F. Kennedy kind of picking up knowledge. It's pretty fascinating. So what did he see during that time? You mentioned he actually did some diplomacy for his father. I mean, what what, what was that, that like? Well, uh, you know, this is a part of the story that I don't think has been told that much. And I found completely interesting. And I'll just interject here, by the way, that the materials at the Kennedy Library, just down the street from where I'm speaking to you now, uh, are so good. And the letters, because the family wrote a load, of, they were really good correspondents in this period. So you have so many letters um, from the kids to their parents and vice versa. Um, and then diary entries when he has these travels. Um, so this part of the story, I think, is great. I think he, he learned, uh, he was fascinated by the developments in European politics. The war clouds were already beginning, I think, to gather. He and his good friend Lem Billings in 37 traveled in many of these places that would later become, you know, at the heart of the war. And so they, they it included a stint in Germany, which I write about. Um, and I think what we see is a young man, 20 years old at that point, who is not only interested in these affairs, but um, making, I think, pretty mature judgments about them. And interestingly enough, sees a more complex world, um, a more crowded world than does his father. And then, of course, right after that trip, or soon after that first trip in 37, his father becomes ambassador to, the, to, to Great Britain. Uh, and is a, a sort of arch appeaser. He's very supportive of Neville, Neville Chamberlain's efforts to avoid a war. And even after the war begins, the father remains this appeaser, opponent of U.S. intervention. And that's where we see this separation between father and son, which I deal, deal with at some length. Um, but that comes in part from these trips that you're, that you're um, asking about. And the trip in 39... Um, it's just stunning. He's in Berlin about a week before the war begins. And I opened the book with that, actually, that little vignette. And learns he learns a great deal on those travels. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, 
And you talk about how he initially did have some of the isolationism of his father. It seemed that that was kind of the default position of most Americans. And yet he uh, begins to question this. And this in many ways kind of parallels what President Roosevelt was doing at the time, educating America towards a more internationalist perspective. How did JFK make that transition himself? Uh, yeah, it's another good one. I, 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 uh, I think it's by it's little by little. It's partly through his interactions with his professors. I found it pretty stunning in my research that the Harvard student body was deeply isolationist. Overwhelming numbers of Harvard undergraduates would say, we have no business fighting this war. This is after the war begins. So this is 39. And so Kennedy's last, Jack's last year at Harvard. We have no business fighting this war. We should prepare to defend the United States but we should certainly not intervene in this war. Professors, I think, are much more um, uh, apt to say, no, no, we need to aid the British and the French, and if necessary, we might need to fight. And I think it's partly then through his interactions with these professors, his own travels that we've discussed, his own assessment of the power politics that causes uh, JFK, I would say, certainly by the spring of his senior year. So when he's just filing this senior thesis to really shift in a way that's quite fundamental and then i think it continues right up to pearl harbor and by that point he is a confirmed interventionist before pearl harbor whereas his father is not mm -hmm. it seems like his father seemed to encourage even if they didn't agree on that issue he still encouraged his son to kind of you know he didn't there wasn't any tension in that respect there no, there wasn't. And I think he's already so ambitious for both of his sons. Let's remember that by 41, let's say, early 41, so before Pearl Harbor, his own political prospects are basically shot. Because I, I think I can show, and others have shown, that Joe Sr. wanted to be president himself, the first Catholic president. Well, because his, his ambassadorship was so disastrous, I think he understood by early 41 that he wasn't going to get there. He was not going to get into politics. Um, so now he began to focus on Joe Jr. in the first instance, and then secondarily, uh, Jack. And I think, I think you're right. I think that he, he understood that his own sharply isolationist position, which Joe Jr. opted to maintain, what was not necessarily the one that Jack should follow, that in fact, in terms of his political future, it might make sense for him to be uh, a bit more open, uh, a bit more in tune with where FDR was and where sort of prevailing sentiment was by 41. Um, and it certainly did not stand in Jack's way when he separated from his, from him, from his father. Mm hmm. So, as we know, uh, President Kennedy was a war hero in World War II. Uh, one thing I thought was fascinating was uh, the way his military experience impacted his foreign policy views and his views on using the military. And both of these have important implications for later on when he's president. So uh, how, did, how exactly did that affect his views? Did that experience? Yeah, I mean, it's a, almost a kind of contradictory pair of assessments, if I can put it that way. Because on the one hand, after his experience in the South Pacific, in the Solomons, 
um, including a remarkable and I would say heroic effort to help save crew after their boat was rammed by a Japanese, sunk by a Japanese destroyer. Um, but I think when he comes back to the United States at the beginning of 1944, a pair of assessments. On the one hand, I think he's skeptical about military force and the use of military force. And I think he has um, been less than impressed by the decisions that his commanders in the Pacific have made, and also to some extent by the broader, uh, the higher up uh, decision-making, strategic decisions that have been made. And I think he will, for the rest of his days, right up until Dallas in, you know, in 63, I think have that kind of, have those misgivings about, about military force used to solve political problems. But on the other hand, the second conclusion that he draws, not entirely contradictory, but it's in tension with the first one, is that the United States must be a, a world leader in, in terms of global politics. It must commit itself after the war ends, whenever it ends, this is in 1944, he's thinking this, it's got to be uh, in a leadership position in international affairs, working in concert with other nations. He's always a believer, I think, in collective security, but it's got to be an interventionist activist United States because the future of the West and of, of, of the nation's security and of Western security is going to depend on that. I think those are the two conclusions, broad conclusions that he draws. And maybe if there's a third one that he draws from his wartime experience, is a certain amount of confidence that he, John F. Kennedy, has leadership um, potential uh, and can perhaps step into the arena himself in some fashion. I do think that the, his, his experience commanding these um, fellow uh, sailors um, is important for his own kind of intellectual development and his confidence. Yeah, and I thought it, it was very interesting because many of the people of his generation that served probably with him or in, in World War II ended up becoming those leaders uh, those military leaders, the generals that he presided over as president, but they had a different view of military force than he did, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah I, I think to some extent they did. I mean, some of them might have in 1945. Sure. If we were to back and trace their views, they might have shared some of his cynicism and some of his skepticism about the decisions that had been made, even though the war was, of course, ultimately successful. But, you know, being career military men, um, uh, I think they did see things differently. And as you point out, and this will be something I deal with in volume two, at key points in his presidency, in his abbreviated presidency, um, he would come into uh, conflict with these senior military officers uh, about how to respond, maybe most notably in the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. So that is part of the story still to come. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam, of course. <laughs> And Vietnam, yeah. uh, there were differences, I think, with military leaders about what should happen in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, this is the part of the Kennedy story that I've probably written about the most previously. Mm -hmm. But in volume two, um, and indeed in volume one, Indochina, uh, as you know, enters into the story. Uh, but in volume two in particular, I'm going to have to sort out what Kennedy sought to do in Vietnam. What were his hopes for that policy? What did he believe could actually happen? Um and where did things stand when he died in uh, late 1963?
So uh, two topics that uh, the public has learned and talked about so much since he died. Uh, first, his health. Uh, second, um, just his uh, his love life, essentially. And uh, so much has been written about those topics. Uh, what did you discover about those topics that uh, may have been missing in you know scholarship since? Well, I think that the health problems that he had really throughout his life were real. The most important one of his ailments was the Addison's disease. Uh, it wasn't initially diagnosed. Uh, he was ultimately diagnosed in, in the late 1940s with that illness by a British doctor, actually, who said, you've got Addison's disease. Um, and treatments were becoming available to make Addison's disease more, more manageable. You could survive it. So he benefited from, from advances in, in medicine at about the time he was diagnosed. But I do think that those um, ailments that he had from a young age, of a, a wide variety of them, um, shaped him as they would shape any of us. Uh, I think on a, on, a, on a positive side, I do think they made him uh, more empathetic. He could put himself into the shoes of other people, at least in a cognitive sense, uh, in, in ways that I think mattered. Um, and so they affected him in that regard. In a different way, maybe they didn't affect him as much as some previous scholars have suggested, some previous biographers have suggested. And what I mean by that is that I find it so striking that he could campaign. If we just look at the campaigns for a second, in 1946, his first House race, in 52, his first Senate race, in 60, of course, running for president. I find it so interesting that um, and remarkable, really, that he could go 16, 17, 18, sometimes maybe even 20 hours a day on his feet, campaigning, often door to door, knocking on people's doors in Boston uh, in, in that House race, for example, or in the Senate race. Not complain about it. He would often, his aides would be exhausted. And there's JFK still willing to do more. All I mean by that is that you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't assume necessarily that uh, that uh, he suffered in terms of his ability to be the driven fellow that he became, do the things that he needed to be, to do to try to to win, and he, and he was he was driven and he was ambitious. With respect to you know to the womanizing, um, it's an important part of his life, and I show that in this first volume. It'll be an important part of the second volume. Um, you know, here he was in many respects, his father's son, um, seeing women more as objects than anything else, objects to be conquered. Not always. Um, there are lots of exceptions to this that I talk about in the book, but that's a feature of, of, of him. Uh, and he's, he's not faithful to Jackie, either before their wedding or after. So if I'm going to say that he's empathetic in some areas, here's an area where he's not empathetic. He's not able to see how this might, how this must be perceived by his own, his own wife. Um, but no question that that's that is a that's part of who he is. Um, no question. Right, and from what you write, it seems that the the two women that really stick out are Inga Arvad and, of course, yeah. Jackie and. Um, 
there's something about those two that kind of stick out above beyond the rest. Obviously, with Jackie, since he married her. So, what about those two were different in his eyes? Well, I, I think, you know, I think he thought that they were both beautiful. Uh, um, so that's uh, one point. More important, I think, in terms of the 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 the, the depth of his his love for them, both of them. Um, is that he found them interesting. Um, he found them, and he often in life, both with men and women, he had relatively little patience with people that he couldn't talk with and who were not interesting people. And he, he was fascinated by both of them. Uh, and Inga's intelligence, her um, facility in multiple languages, he thought was just was absolutely amazing to him. Um, her sense of humor, I think that's the other thing that these two women have in common is that they're both very witty. Jackie was too. And they, she had a kind of absurdist sense of humor that I think he kind of shared and he respected. And he loved the fact that Jackie could speak fluent French and was excellent also in Spanish. She could get by in German. He was terrible with languages. And so I think the fact that these women uh, were anything but... I think just appealed to him a lot. Um, and I think both also had a certain love of gossip, or at least sometimes like to talk about other people. He certainly loved to gossip. So there was that that they had in common. There are also lots of things that with Jackie in particular, he didn't have in common. So one should also talk in terms of their relationship and the marriage about the fact that they were in some respects quite different people. Uh, and both in volume one, but more so in volume two, still to be uh, written. Uh, I'm going to delve into that. I have to and talk about the nature of that marriage, its strengths and its weaknesses, uh, the evolution of it, because I think it does uh, evolve. Um, but as you point out, these are the two, I would say, the two great loves of his life. Uh, no question. So, uh President Kennedy being a Democrat, uh, in some ways he falls into that Democrat uh, internationalist uh, yeah. type of thinking. But at the same time, you, you get the sense that he was an independent thinker, uh, especially when it comes to foreign policy. So what did he think about Wilson and FDR and Truman, the, the great Democratic presidents uh, in his lifetime, the major ones? And what did he think about their... Uh, types of progressivism and their types, their uh, thoughts on internationalism. Hmm. Yeah, he was, there's a lot there. It's a really good question. <laughs> uh, he was a committed Democrat, of course, throughout his career. I uh, probably don't need to state that, but it's worth at least underscoring. I think he was ultimately very much uh, in the heart of the Democratic Party, if I can put it that way, in terms of his own positions. Uh, a centrist, broadly speaking. On some issues, he was quite conservative. On fiscal issues, for example, he was quite conservative. On foreign policy, he was really, an, uh, as I suggest in the book, and I think I show in the book, he was an early early cold warrior. Um, but I think if you look at it sort of broadly speaking, I think he is in the heart of the Democratic Party. He's quite liberal on other positions. With respect to these presidents, I didn't get the sense, this was somewhat surprising to me, actually, that he, I didn't get the sense that he connected in any kind of deep way with FDR, which is only surprising in the sense that FDR was president for 
so much of his youth growing up and his early uh, sort of adult years. Um, and his father worked closely for a long time with FDR. Then they had a kind of falling out. So that may account for the fact that I don't think um, JFK ever felt that connected to Roosevelt. But I do think the broad uh, outlines of the New Deal, which Truman then, of course, maintained, JFK fully endorsed, fully accepted. The idea that government's fundamental role is not to help those who have a lot already. It's to try to build up those who don't have as much. It's to try to, to, to support those who are in a tougher position. Uh, that's one of the, the core functions of, of the federal government. I think that, that's something that Kennedy completely embraced. So ultimately, I think he follows in the tradition uh, laid down in particular by FDR. There's also a kind of Wilsonian, to go back a bit further, there's a Wilsonian quality to Kennedy's views on foreign policy. This idea that the United States has has to play an important role in leadership terms um, to make the world safe for democracy, as Wilson would have put it. That's also there. So all three of these democratic giants, before he himself becomes president, um, I think leave their mark. I think he comes to respect Harry Truman, even though I think initially he's a little skeptical in, say, 45, when this unknown you know, relatively unknown Missouri politician becomes all of a sudden president. I think he's a bit skeptical early on that Truman has what it takes. He was uh, not alone in that. <laughs> some, fr- yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's some friction between them later on. I think Truman is a little slow to warm to JFK. To be quite honest, this is something I'll deal more, more with in Volume Two. But yeah, even Truman, in his own way, I think Kennedy sees himself as following in a certain sense, or at least upholding uh, elements of the fair deal and continuing the New Deal policies. Right. It's very interesting because he when when he looks at the Cold War and kind of formulates his views on containment, he 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 focuses a lot on the third world and decolonialization and and those kind of things. How did he get interested in that? How did he start pointing that out as a major element of containment? Well, I think it's a it's it's fascinating to me, uh, Richard, in that he, you know, he is this cold warrior uh, and is really sharply critical of the Truman administration on certain issues. For example, he's inclined to believe those or or to agree with those who say that the Truman administration lost China, um, or at least is critical of the administration's handling of the Chinese Civil War. So you, there's that aspect of it. And yet somehow, over a course of maybe a year or so, 1950-51, he begins to say, I think, to himself and to others, well, now, wait a minute. Um, this cannot simply be about communism versus anti-communism. That as we, as the United States, becomes more involved in world affairs, we have got to give people in the developing world uh, these former former colonial, or in some cases still colonial uh, peoples, colonized peoples, but who are working to, to try to get independence and freedom. We've got to give them something to, to, to believe in. We've got to meet them where they are, he says, time and again. So he becomes interested in, and I think knowledgeable about um, decolonization. 
and the efforts underway in that direction. And I think it's broadly supportive. And what's ironic about this, of course, is that the outstanding example, in some ways, is Indochina. He travels to the Far East in 1951 with his brother Bobby and his sister Pritcha. And among other places they visit is, in fact, Vietnam. And he sees what the French are doing. He's not impressed, doesn't think that they can win. I opened my last book, Embers of War, that you kindly mentioned at the outset of our, of our discussion. I opened Embers of War with the Kennedys in Vietnam. What's ironic about this is that he asks all the right questions about the French and what they're doing, is appropriately skeptical that they can beat Ho Chi Minh's revolution, and yet a decade later as president is going to oversee an important expansion of U.S. involvement against that very same uh, revolution, if you will. Uh, and that's a conundrum, I guess, that in the second volume of this biography, I'm going to try to sort through. Uh, because I think he he's, in many respects, still the same. Um, he has the same views, fundamentally, intellectually, and yet he's making decisions that seem contrary to, to those views. Um, mm -hmm. fascinating part of the story. Yeah, that's going to be quite a project to sort through. I'm looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> what, what was he like as a legislator? I, I think uh, you quote his sister Eunice saying that at times he wasn't super engaged, but at the same time, this was his political schooling before becoming president. What what was his tenure like in the Senate and the, the House and the Senate? Uh, I think he was not a particularly notable legislator. Um, I think he was pretty impatient from day one in the House to, to move on, uh, or maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but certainly he had his eyes on the Senate from an early point. I think he, you know, he realized what many first-time congressmen and women realize, which is, I'm one of 435 people. I'm the low person on the totem pole here. It's going to be years, maybe decades, before I can really make any sort of difference. So I think he does not really apply himself um, in a sort of energetic way to a lot of legislative business. On the other hand, he picks his moments. He shows that he has an ability to um, affect public debate, I think, from an early point. He becomes more and more able as a, as a, as a speechmaker in terms of giving lectures. He becomes a better orator. Um, he's popular among his colleagues because I think he's respectful in personal terms. There's a kind of graciousness to his sort of one-on-one -on -one behavior. And I think all of that matters. And I think in the Senate in particular, where he feels more at home, it's, it's, uh, there's more decorum in the Senate and that appeals to him. It's more old school. It's more tradition bound. I think he likes that much more. So in that sense, it's not the legislative sense, but it's in terms of being uh, ultimately an effective member of the upper chamber. Um, I think he equips himself quite well. Now, again, I'm stopping. The, the book stops here in 56, this first volume. So it'll be interesting to see as I get into 57 and 58 and as he's running for president, if my assessment changes. But that's that's how I would put it currently. So uh, one thing that's been written a lot about his Senate career is the whole uh, situation, well, House and Senate is the whole situation with Joe McCarthy. And it's well known the Kennedys have a lot of ties with McCarthy. And he 
Kennedy yeah. gets criticism for dodging the issue. What, what did you find out about that issue that maybe yeah. hasn't been talked about much? I think this is, this is, um, I could have written so much about this. I, I just found this totally fascinating. I think that, you know, a few things we could say here. One is that McCarthy is close to the Kennedy family. This was something that surprised me, the extent of this in my re- uh, when, I, when I got into the research. His father in particular, Joe Sr., really likes McCarthy, uh, even likes his attitude, his antics, his, his, his demeanor, um, uh, the kind of aggressive uh, side of Joe McCarthy. I think, I think Joe Kennedy just sort of laps that up. Bobby Kennedy, the younger brother, we haven't talked about him yet. Bobby also becomes close to McCarthy. And in fact, McCarthy takes out a couple of the Kennedy sisters on, on dates. So the point is, he's pretty close to the family. I'm not sure that JFK himself ever feels all that close to McCarthy. Because he, the, the sort of senatorial good manners that I talked about a few minutes ago, which Kennedy uh, prides himself on and believes are really important, McCarthy, of course, doesn't have. I think he thinks of McCarthy as a crude bully, but he's also not willing to really distance himself from McCarthy because, and this is the other point to make, there are a lot of Irish Catholics in Massachusetts. JFK does not want to get on their bad side. And so he kind of bobs and weaves on McCarthy, I would argue, for too long. Uh, I think he never really comes out uh, in firm opposition to McCarthy, uh, even in 54 when the Senate votes to censure McCarthy. And he's really now by now on a downward slope. Um, Kennedy is really not willing to, to he's not willing to, to cast a vote for censure. He's in the hospital at the time, but he could have instructed his aide, Ted Sorensen, to register a vote in his absence, in, 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 in his absence. But he chose not to do that. Uh, and he he said plainly that he wanted to dodge this particular issue. And as I think as a result, Richard, he he caused problems for himself with liberals in the party, including Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, that would dog him, you know, really up till 1960. I think he made he made life harder for himself uh, through his as I put it, his uh, bobbing and weaving on on McCarthy. But it's part of it's part of this second red scare in the United States. Another thing that I would just add here quickly is that I think as an ambitious politician, Kennedy understood that with, with respect to communism and how we should treat the Soviet Union, but also communists potentially within the United States, the safe political, the savvy political position is to be on the right, to be hawkish, to be aggressive. Um, so there's that element of it too. I think Kennedy thought it was better for himself to stake out a position uh, that was quite uncompromising with respect to both foreign and domestic um, communists. Right. And you, you just brought up his brother, Bobby. Um, one, one thing I thought was interesting, you mentioned, uh, I, I think you you wrote something to the effect that his, his brother, Bobby, was actually a lot like their dad, Joe Sr., uh, in many ways. And how was that the case? What was his relationship like with President Kennedy? And how did it change? Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, we should remember that they're pretty far apart in age. 
It's about eight and a half years difference between uh, Jack and Robert and Bobby. So when they're little, and I'm I'm eight years younger than than my brother and ten years younger than my sister, so I have a sense of what's involved here. Um, when they were little, I don't think they were particularly close. And there's also it's also a huge family, so there aren't as many opportunities for them to really get to know each other. He's playing but with Joe with, Joe Junior most of the time, probably. That's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that um, you know Joe Junior is a kind of surrogate father figure, and he's often the one that the younger kids, including Bobby. Um, spend a lot of time with, um, more so than with Jack. But I think when they have a trip together, this trip I mentioned before, 1951, over many weeks, 25,000 miles they covered on that trip, I think they really bond. And Jack comes to see that his little brother is intelligent, he is um, dedicated, uh, he's going to be loyal you know, to the nth degree, uh, he's cheerful. There's just a there are a lot of attributes that he sees maybe for the first time in Bobby, uh, and then the next year when he runs uh, for a Senate seat and has this epic victory, which I write about uh, at some length in the book against Henry Cabot Lodge. Incredible, in some ways one of the one of the perfect Senate campaigns in at least modern American history. Um, it's Bobby who takes over a, a floundering campaign. He's 26 years old, and he takes charge of this thing and shows, to go back to the other point you made, some of the same attributes that are often attributed, uh, some of the same uh, attributes that, that Joe, Joe Sr. is thought to have. Bobby can be ruthless. He is determined. He's not concerned about niceties. He's not concerned about you know diplomacy. Uh, he, his only aim is to do whatever helps his older brother, whom he worships, basically, win this, win this Senate seat. That's all that drives Bobby Kennedy. And he's really effective, and they become really close. He's kind of like your, your dream campaign manager, basically, the guy you want in your corner. Oh, completely. I think that's exactly right. And, of course, come 1960... Um, Jack basically knows that Bobby has to be really involved here and I'm going to rely a great deal on him. And, and so he will, so he will do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there've been accusations that, uh, profiles encourage about the level of authorship he had, he had, uh, you, you push back against that. So why do you think that this has become a controversy and what, what did you learn in your research on this? Yeah, I think I think Profiles in Courage became controversial only because it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1957. Had it not won that prize, I don't think we would be talking about this. I think it was common at the time for politicians to have help on their books. In fact, it was routine even then for there to be lots of assistance on these books. But because it won this prize, understandably, uh, there's this... Controversy, and I don't think, by the way, that it should have been awarded that prize. So when I push back uh, against some of the arguments made about profiles and courage, it's not so much that I think this was um, an important work of history. Um, it was fairly thin in terms of the research, at least compared to other uh, prize-winning books of this kind. The writing, I'd say, is is kind of average, or at least it's hit and miss, in part because it is a kind of committee product. 
Where I push back, though, is on the notion that JFK had minimal role in the enterprise, that this thing was just written for him, mostly by Ted Sorensen and by two or three professors. Uh, yes, no question that they were involved. No question that the case studies that form the, the bulk of the chapters were mostly drafted by Sorensen in particular. But I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming. And I present this evidence that Sorensen was too young, uh, 26, I think that's what he was at the time, uh, to have any sense of what the themes of the book should be, the architecture of the book, um, the main arguments of the books, the conclusions. Uh, I think he had, as he said himself, he had really no clue about any of that. So that those are all JFKs. I would also say that in terms of the introduction and the conclusion, which are the most important part of the books, and I think the ones that matter the most historically, Kennedy's own in involvement in those chapters was, was, was very significant. Uh, he was principal, I would say, on those two. And then we also have evidence that in the middle chapters and the rest of it, uh, he is throughout uh, heavily engaged. That's where I push back a little bit. I think it was a collaborative effort, uh, and it would not be the book that it is without Kennedy's heavy uh, involvement. While, by the way, recovering from this very serious surgery that he had in late 54. Um, so he's doing this partly on his back in Florida in recovery. Uh, with Sorensen's assistance, and also, by the way, Jackie's assistance. We don't often talk about the fact that his wife, Jackie, uh, helped out in certain ways with respect to the book Right. Uh, that I think were important. Mm -hmm. So uh, you write about the famous story of young uh, Congressman John F. Kennedy, young Congressman Richard Nixon. These are 30-something-year-old men, <laughs> new generation. They're taking the train to Pennsylvania. Uh, what what happened in that instance, and what were his relationships like with the future presidents, with Johnson, with Nixon, maybe even with Ford? Well, he, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I brought here is that he is he's not very partisan in terms of his relationships, and maybe this is a lesson for our very deeply partisan moment today, um, the the age in which we now live. I think it's useful to remember that it was not always so. And so one of the things that JFK did is have a kind of salon in his Georgetown home when he first became a congressman. And various lawmakers would come to the house for dinners, long conversations. It would have been great to be a fly on, on, on that wall when those conversations took place. The point is, he had as many Republicans at those dinners as he did Democrats. Uh, and uh, I think that's something we see really throughout his career is that he's not uh, he's not deeply partisan in that sense. Um, I think with respect to Nixon, he respected him um, from the <coughs> excuse me from the time that they come to Washington together. He says to one of his aides, "Keep your eye on that guy. He, he's going places." So he could sense that Nixon was going to be a formidable player. This incident that you mentioned is when they travel to uh, Pennsylvania, to a, to a small town near Pittsburgh, and have a kind of debate. Uh, Congress used to do that in those days. They had a sort of traveling 
a kind of roadshow. Lawmakers would go out into various parts of the country and um, speak at public forums. And they debated basically labor legislation, uh, labor rights, um, and it was more or less a draw, I think, on that particular evening. But then they took the train back to Washington together and even shared a, um, a sleeper car, if you can imagine. So mm-hmm. you've got these two presidents together, one in the upper bunk, one in the lower bunk. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And they talk for much of the night. And so I think they have later, I think their relations will sour um, when they when they face off against each other uh, in 1960. Although there's even then a level of respect between these two presidential candidates that I think is notable. With Johnson, I think it's a complex relationship, but I do think that Johnson is critical to his victory in 1960. That's something I'm going to talk about. Um, And, you know, I don't think, at least as of now, I sense particularly close relations with with Gerald Ford per se, but but the the Nixon ties in particular are interesting in this period. Yeah. Now, your book ends in 1956. Obviously, that's the year where he uh, really starts to break through nationally. Uh, Why did he run for the vice presidential slot? And what impact did this have going forward on him and his career? Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, his father didn't want him to run for that slot. His father said, Jack, this is a disaster. You're a, a, a bleep bleep idiot for doing this, he basically said to him. Um, because he was pretty certain that if he became Adlai Stevenson, and it was clear that Stevenson was going to be the nominee by this point, Joe Sr. felt, if you become Stevenson's running mate, you're going to lose. He's going to lose regardless. And they'll blame it on the fact that you're a Catholic and your career might be finished, Jack. Well, he here again, he defied his father. He decided he wanted this nomination uh, he he became he came so close to winning it. I think it's a very dramatic story that I tell toward the end of the book. When Stevenson decides to leave it up to the convention, to open it up to the convention to decide on the vice presidential slot. And as a result, you have one of the most dramatic, uh, certainly DNC, Democratic conventions uh, for the last, say, 70 or 80 years. Uh, it was really tense. And he came up just short, which for him in the end, I think, was a plus. And the reason it was a plus is because he was a star of that convention. Jack Kennedy was now a household name in a way that he had not been before, Senator Kennedy, um, with with a beautiful wife who was eight months pregnant at the time. She would actually have a stillbirth shortly after the convention. It's another story. But the point is, he came out of that convention because of the speeches that he gave, because of this vice presidential um, contest, as the new face of the Democratic Party. And I think it did him a lot of good. I think it helped convince him later in 56, and this is where I end the book, that I'm going for the big prize next time around. And, And by golly, I can do it. I'm in a position here, even as a Catholic, maybe in part because I'm a Catholic, to claim the Democratic nomination four years from now. And that's what he then set out to do. But the point is that this uh, effort to become Stevenson's running mate, in some ways, couldn't have been scripted any better from his long-term political uh, perspective. 
it, it seems like going for the nomination but not getting it so you you kind of have the best of both worlds right you you get the attention of running but you don't get the blowback of losing in the general uh yeah. why did he think it was worth it it sounded like he i think one would have to imagine that he felt eisenhower would have been very hard to beat but why did he think it was worth it yeah. the way his father uh, didn't yeah you're, you're good to you're good to press on this because i think that's an important question um because he couldn't have known you know in hindsight we can say oh he had this brilliant insight that this would happen and then this would happen and then this would happen well he couldn't have known that uh and in fact he wanted that nomination very badly uh hoped to get it uh and um you know came up came up short i think he the part of it was just sheer competitiveness uh all the action in 56 was on on this question of who's going to be Stevenson's running mate. And he was mentioned as a candidate, and I think it kind of wet his um, his his competitive appetite. And so part of it is just that. This is where the action is. I want in on the action. And then I think he said quite revealingly in, his, in a letter to his father that I quote, this is probably June of 56. He said, if nothing else, it's good to have my name churning up, in so many words. To, to keep all of this churning, I think is what he said. So some part of him thought, well, regardless of what happens, um, I need to be in the discussion about the vice presidential slot. If I get it, maybe we can win. Even if we don't, um, I think I can overcome any kind of stigma that is attached to the fact that I was on the losing presidential t ticket. I think that's that's his basic conclusion. But there's no question that it's a gamble. And that, in fact, at the time, I think his father's position was probably the sounder one politically than his own uh, uh, before they knew what was going to happen. He may have also been thinking of the example that President Franklin Roosevelt set being the losing nominee or the in 1920, vice president still ended up winning in 1932. So that That's might have been point. a factor. Yeah. Yeah. That, then he was a student of history, so he might have had that in the back of his mind. It's a good point. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll ask one last question and uh, not wanting to do any spoiler alerts or anything like that. But uh, however far you're into your second volume, what is it starting to look like in your head as far as what it could end up being? Well, it'll be it'll be a long book. Um, looks like we've lost a bit, video, oh. but uh, it'll mm -hmm. be a long book um, uh, because of even though I'm only covering seven years in the second volume, it's 1957, obviously to the end to the assassination in, in late '63. There's a lot to do, uh, and I'm going to devote a fair amount of attention early on to this long campaign for the presidency. One of the secrets of John F. Kennedy's success as a politician at all stages is that he starts earlier and works harder than his opponents. So there'll be a lot there, but of course, most of the book will be uh, the campaign in '60, and then of course the presidency itself. And you know, Richard, I need um, I need first and foremost for the archives to reopen. I'm not able to darken the doorways of, of various um, archives um, around the country. Most notably, of course, the Kennedy Library right here, but also others. Uh, so we're looking at that, uh, and then uh, obviously, obviously, writing the book itself. It's going to be with me for 
this project's going to be with me for a few years still. But the good news is that I'm, I'm having fun with it. And this ambition that we talked at the outset about, which is to tell not only Kennedy's story, but America's story, um, I'm looking forward to continuing that in volume two. That's wonderful. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. And the book for our listeners, it's called JFK Coming of Age in the American Century, 1917 to 1956 uh, by Frederick Logoval. Professor Logoval, we appreciate your time and just being able to talk about your your research. And uh, yeah, best best wishes with the book, I'm sure. I mean, it's a great contribution to Kennedy scholarship. Well, you're, you're kind to have me on. I'm delighted to know that you're doing this podcast and um, and to be part of it uh, is, is a privilege for me. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.